Praise the Lord, everyone. Great to see you here this evening. It's wonderful to be here with church family and uh, be together on Wednesday night for a midweek Bible study. And for those of you that are joining us via Facebook Live and live stream, we'd like to say welcome to you as well. And we appreciate you tuning in wherever you are. I want to give you just a few announcements this evening, and I'll leave you with a, uh, just a brief thought before Pastor comes. Before I do, just look at your favorite neighbor and tell him, man, it's good to see you. I see wives and husbands t saying that to each other. That, that's a blessing. That is a blessing right there. Amen. Just a few announcements this evening. want to uh, remind you that Brother Greg Albritton will be back with us in service uh, this coming Sunday, the 10th, and also on the 17th. And also on the 10th, uh, we'll be having a communion Sunday, so please come prepared for that. And April 17th is Easter Sunday. 2022 is moving quickly, and the Easter season is upon us already. And then on Sunday, May 1st, we will have a Move the Mission cake auction. And if you would like to contribute to that effort, uh, if you bake awesome stuff and uh, are willing to put that up for auction for the purpose of raising money for missions, then please contact Sister Tanya Coley. And as always, you can stay tuned with what's happening here at Grace Church by either downloading the app or by clicking on the events tab on our website. I don't know if you have uh, noticed this, but it's become um, very, very apparent to me, especially over the past couple of weeks, about how increasingly unkind our world can be um, sometimes. And that's not to say that there aren't good people in the world doing good things, but it seems like there's just a general tone of unkindness. And in a world like that, our Christian witness, one of the greatest witnesses we can have is just showing mercy. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, it seems like the highest form of humor these days is the put down. Uh, we have comedians that get paid exorbitant amounts of money to say mean things. That's been in the news a little bit lately, if you've seen the goings on between Chris Rock and Will Smith all started because of an unkind word that was supposed to be a joke. But whenever people see you showing mercy and sharing merciful words, they'll say, you know what, that's what I expect a Christian to be like because it looks so different from what they typically see throughout the day. Jesus said quite simply in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, he just said, just be merciful just as your father is merciful. And that's something that we need to take to heart tonight. Our mercy demonstrated through our words can really go a long way in pointing people toward Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you this evening as pastor comes. Well, great to see you folks tonight. Thank you so very much for coming and uh, joining us tonight for Wednesday night Bible study and as we progress through this presentation tonight uh, keep our young folks and our kids in prayer our young folks are having youth service tonight in the Alexander Center 
across the way and uh, our kids. And it sure is quiet in here when they're uh, in another part of the building, is it not? And I don't see any of the parents really minding that right now. And uh, But keep them in your prayers. And uh, we're thankful to see everybody here tonight. Um, thank you so very much for coming. Always look forward to Wednesday night Bible study. And uh, uh, I enjoy this time with you. <clears throat> I'd like to... I've thought a lot of this about this, and I've, I've, I've prayed about it, and I feel like it's the right thing to do. As you know, um, for the next couple of Sundays, Brother Greg Albright will be with us, has been announced. And I know we're approaching Easter season, and he and I have had conversation about that, and he even mentioned that on Easter Sunday, sometimes it's challenging to have that move of God on, on Easter Sunday. And uh, I ask him to come on and we'll work, do our best to, to try to plow through that and uh, have a move of God anyway. And uh, I'm saying that to say, I'd like for you to come this coming Sunday, uh, really being sensitive to the Spirit of the Lord and certainly on Easter Sunday. And uh, we have had in the past just tremendous uh, moves of God on Easter Sunday and I know it's a big holiday but there's a whole lot more to Easter Sunday than Easter eggs and bunny rabbits and, and those kind of things and I think all of that is it's okay and um, uh, we've done a little bit of some of that here during the Sunday school time but I believe at 11 o'clock when we come in here it's time to worship it's time to hear from God and I don't think it should be any different than any other Sunday amen and I uh, certainly hope and pray that all of you are on board with that. So listen very carefully. In light of that, we do want to honor our sweet Lord this coming Sunday in sharing in the communion service. We want everybody to feel free to participate as you feel to. Uh, but I would like to do something that's unprecedented at Grace Church. I would like to open the service Sunday morning with communion. Uh, that will be the first thing we do Sunday morning. So our ministry team, of course, will be prepared for that. And uh, I'd like for you to help spread the word. We will have uh, you being notified probably a couple of times between now and this coming Sunday via text uh, as we do. We'll get word out to everybody. Uh, you wouldn't want to be late. Uh, not for that. <clears throat> and I think it's worthy, something worthy of making sure you're on time for it, especially if you want to participate in communion. We've never done that before. But uh, I feel like it would just really set a tone. It would set an atmosphere for what God would do uh, for the rest of the service this coming Sunday. And then when Brother Greg ministers, I'd like for us to be open for the altar service to see God do some amazing things in the lives of the people that will be here. So uh, if you'll help me spread word, and then we will notify you uh, between now and this coming Sunday to remind you of that announcement. Thank the Lord. Love Grace Church. I'm so thankful for the wonderful people that make Grace Church what it is. And uh, we say this oftentimes. Unfortunately, the people I'm talking about are not in here right now to hear it. But I deeply love and appreciate our kids ministry people, our youth staff people. They're doing a phenomenal job. 
And uh, that's why we're having kids church somewhere else tonight and youth service somewhere else tonight is because there's people that have a lot of passion and a lot of desire to minister to our young folks on their level. Thank the Lord. So very thankful for that. I want to call your attention tonight to Romans chapter 7, verse 21. This is a very wordy uh, scripture setting tonight, and I will do my best to explain it uh, so that you can understand it. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and uh, he said, I find then a law. Everybody say a law. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He called that a law. It's almost a standard of something that you have to do, and if you don't do it, it's not legal. Uh, he called it a law. This isn't a principle. It's not a concept. He called it a law. So I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Everybody say the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, he said, who shall deliver me from this body, from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then when with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I have a couple of objectives here tonight I would, I would seek after, and that is if there's people here tonight that are struggling with sin in your life on whatever level that you'll go home and perhaps have a conversation with God, have a conversation with your family and determine that I'm going to do my best to stop that. The second thing is that if you have this conversation in your, in your heart with yourself, with your family, whoever it may pertain to, that you will not judge what you feel to be sin or not based on what you think but based on what the word of God says we say that often around here our culture is moving quickly 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 away from what the word of God deems as sin and then calling it acceptable uh, I still think obedience to the word of God is what's going to save you um, not what we think culture tells us so what Paul is saying here um, I understand this uh, I think most of us understand this, that there's a big part of me. I had this conversation with Sister Murph just a couple of days ago. There's a big part of me that loves God with all my heart, with all my might. I love the Lord. I do. But then there's another part of me that says, hey, nobody's around. Nobody's watching. I can slip off and do this. I can slip off and do that. And you have that temptation and all of those things. And this is basically what Paul is saying. But what's interesting, and, and, and the amazing apostle that he was, he was very honest and transparent and says, I still battle my flesh and fleshly desires that there's just things I want to do that's contrary to the word of God, to the will of God, etc. And I fight that every single day is what essentially he's saying here. What's interesting to me in this passage is he referred to this as a law. The law of sin. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight is the law of sin. All of us are familiar with the, 
the, the great artist, I suppose, during the Renaissance named Rembrandt. Uh, has anybody heard of Rembrandt by a show of hands? Does anybody know his last name by the show of hands? If you do, I'd like for you to stand and pronounce it. Because <clears throat> I looked it up. And I am not schooled in that uh, particular last name. As a matter of fact, his last name is made up of three names. So that makes it even more complicated. It's very long and I'm not even going to try it. So he is just simply known as Rembrandt. It was his first name and that was and is the only cognomen needed to identify this artist. His life is like a novel. Born into a family of Millers. His last name was not Miller. He was born into a family of Millers and that is someone who owns or operates a mill. He's the eighth of nine children. The young Rembrandt had a single passion growing up. He wished to be a great painter. He began to paint early on after three years of college at the age of 15. That's interesting to me. After three years of college at the age of 15, he was apprenticed to a painter of great reputation. His early portraits reveal an interest in the Bible. Probably encouraged by his very pious and religious mother, he vividly portrayed such biblical scenes as Belshazzar gazing at the the hand writing on the wall and uh, the storm on the Sea of Galilee and a, uh, an incarcerated Jeremiah praying for his people. He even painted uh, a portrait of a praying Hannah in the Old Testament. Rembrandt was married to the daughter of a very wealthy baker. Of the four children born to this union, only one, his son Titus, survived infancy. Rembrandt's paintings fared better than his progeny. So as a young adult, his paintings became quite popular and people wanted would, would come from hundreds of miles around to pay a small fortune to sit for a portrait rendered by Rembrandt. He was soon recognized as a link in the long line of Dutch masters whose works dominated the 16th and 17th centuries and Rembrandt became very wealthy, yet what he earned, he spent. He collected all sorts of costumes, armory, and props for his paintings. He lived large and spent as if there was no tomorrow. Rembrandt's success brought him comfort. Comfort swiftly led to ease, and with ease came dissolution. The artist slipped into the familiar pattern of moral decline. And the significant relationships in his life suffered. And then his mother died. And then his wife died. And his last child, Titus, passed away. And Rembrandt's debts continued to stack up. And he was forced to file bankruptcy. And his remaining possessions were divided among his creditors. Rembrandt was ruined. He had nothing and no one left in his life. And less than after... Less than a year after losing it all, he too died and was buried a pauper. His ruin was not simply recorded in his documents and deeds. Rembrandt painted dozens of self-portraits, such pictures from visual biographies of a life by largesse uh, turned to lethargy. His portrait of himself as a young man shows a strong, clean face and clear lighting. 
His last, his last self-portrait shows a different face, obscured. Something is missing in his eyes. The candles of his soul are dimmed. The fire and sparkle are gone. What caused the ruin of Rembrandt? It was not a storm that swept through his life, even though there were many. It was a, not, wasn't a cold winter's wind that extinguished the fires within. It was a sickness of the soul. Historians write about him. A sickness as common to a man's soul as a cold is to the body. The common malady was called the easy life. His soul wasted away while he was at ease. And the life of ease always ends or leads to the malady of sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read where David, who should have been out on the battlefield, decided to stay at home and take it easy. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the Bible said, And it came to pass after the year was expired, and the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. And David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an even evening tide that David arose off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. So while David's men were out on the battlefield, David was at home taking a nap. Eugene Patterson's The Message says, David got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of the palace. At the time when kings go forth for battle, David is at home taking it easy, napping, and then strolling. And from his vantage point on the roof, he saw Bathsheba bathing, and she was stunningly beautiful. Verse 4 informs us that David sent his his agents to her, and after she arrived in his company, He went to bed with her. Matthew Henry commentary states that idleness gives great advantage to the tempter. Standing waters gather filth, he said. The bed of sloth often proves the bed of lust. So I'm telling us tonight that a life of ease always leads to the malady of sin. And herein lies the law of sin. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say and I don't want to be offensive here tonight, but, but I want to use this story of David and Bathsheba for a moment to illustrate what the Bible calls the law of sin. Looking at a woman lustfully does not cause a man to commit adultery in his thoughts. He already has committed adultery in his heart. It is not lustful looking that causes the sin in the heart. But the sin in the heart causes the lustful looking. So the lustful looking is but the expression of a heart that is already immoral and already adulterous. The heart is the soil where the seeds of sin are embedded and begins to grow. Even Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, don't let me lose you here. Y'all bear with me for a moment. I'm building a little foundation. For whosoever looketh on a woman... To lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus is saying there's something wrong with the heart of this person. There's there's something wrong with this person before the temptation ever came. 
Jesus is not speaking of unexpected and unavoidable exposure to sexual temptation. When a man happens to see a woman provocatively dressed, Satan will surely try to tempt that man with lustful thoughts, but there is no sin if the temptation is resisted, Jesus taught, and the gaze is turned elsewhere. It is continuing to look in order to satisfy the lustful desire, the immorality that's in the heart of that person. That's what Jesus is condemning here because it evidences a vile and immoral heart. David was not at fault for seeing Bathsheba bathing. He could not have helped noticing her because she was in plain view as if as he walked out on the palace roof. His first mistake was staying at home and taking it easy when he should have been out on the battlefield. And his sin was dwelling on the site and, and willing succumbing to the temptation. He could have looked away and put the experience out of his mind. The fact that he had her brought to his chambers and committed adultery with her expressed the immoral desire that already existed, that was already on the inside of him. There's a popular proverb that says, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. James said in his epistle in James chapter 1 verse 14 that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. It's already in him. It's in his heart and enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So verse 5 informs us that before long Bathsheba realized that she's expecting a child and so immediately David goes into damage control mode, which is even typical of our uh, culture today. So he sent Joab to the battlefield to bring Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, bring him home in hopes that Uriah would sleep with his wife and mistakenly believe that the baby was his. Uriah, however, had better ethics than his king, and he refused to sleep with Bathsheba, choosing instead to sleep at the palace entrance with the king's servants. So because of this, David had Uriah put on the front lines of the battle where his life would certainly be taken. So not only was David now an adulterer, but now he was also a murderer. These things were already in his heart. Listen to Pastor tonight. I want to say with all my heart tonight, and I, I, I hope that... This makes live stream, and, and uh, you can go back and watch it later. I'd love for our youth group to even watch it. But listen to Pastor. Sin is a vice that takes you farther than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. So I introduce you tonight to what the Bible calls the law of sin. And... This is more applicable. I've used the story of David and Bathsheba, but adultery is not the only sin. I hope everybody understands that principle. It could be anything. Covetousness, could be lying, gossiping, stealing, cheating. be anything. So Paul wants us to know in verse 18 that nothing good lives in us, he said. As humanity, we're born in sin. The Bible said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
So Paul lets us know that there's nothing good that lives in us. In other words, in our sinful nature, there's nothing good. Paul sees this as part of being human. Although we belong to Christ and have died to sin, those that have been born again, we still live in a sinful world and we still have a sinful nature. And I've, I've, I've talked to people through the years that literally believed when I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost that sinning is over for me. And that's not true. God doesn't violate a person's will. He doesn't violate a person's desire. So you can have all the Holy Ghost you want, but still sin as much as you want. God's not going to stop that. You have to exercise strict accountability and strict discipline in your own life. And a desire to please God through loving him and so on, these things can be, uh, for the most part, achieved. So picture the, the highly trained commander of a modern-day tank. It's equipped with laser-guided systems, electronic wizardry, atomic power. In preparation for a crucial batter, battle, uh, suppose the operator loaded up the tank with the wrong kind of fuel filled his magazines, his gun magazines, with the wrong caliber of ammunition and picked up the wrong maps and directions and left most of his crew in their bunks, how effective would he be under fire? And this explains why it is so important that we as the people of God stay full of the Holy Ghost, to stay full of the Holy Ghost, to stay plugged in. And again, it takes a lot of discipline, which is the essence of discipleship to stay plugged in, to stay sensitive, to stay active in the Word of God and the will of God and so on. You won't be that effective as a Christian person if you're not prayed up, etc., studying the Word of God, etc., doing what the Bible commands us to do. So oftentimes we undertake, listen very carefully, I know church people that do this, we undertake spiritual warfare into our own strength We use our own tools, we use our own resources, and we make up our own directions as we go along. So we shouldn't be surprised if Satan quickly puts us out of commission. And I've seen this happen to so many people. Well, the the, the tension continues. The NIV says, uh, translating what Paul said, "What, what I do is not the good I want to do. The evil that I don't want to do this I keep on doing. And it's because people believe there's American people, there's American Christian people that believe that I can conduct successful spiritual warfare on my own based on what I know, what I believe, and I don't ever have to engage God into my life. So I don't have to pray, I don't have to seek God, and so on. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So Paul describes the person who knows what is good and might even desire to do it but this person lacks the power to overcome the sin element in their life so without the help of the Holy Spirit the person is dominated by the power of sin and continues to do evil when he actually desires to do good the law or principle at work here is the reality that evil is within us even when we want to do good so everybody here has this problem we're all human We're all human. I I heard somebody recently ask, raise your hand tonight if you came from a family. And there's people that raise their hand. All you other folks that didn't raise your hand, where did you come from? Just curious. Uh, If you come from a family, 
if you're human and came from a human family, you're going to have these issues of sin. Everybody does in one way or another. Everybody does. And I, I believe everybody here tonight, when, when we most want to do good, that we become so acutely aware of our propensity not to be able to on our own. A swimmer has no idea how strong the current is until he tries to swim upstream. When he faces the current, he finds this law at work. The current is against him. According to Paul in verse 22, believers take delight in God's law because they long to know it, they long to do it, they long to please God. This is where most of us live. This is where most of us should be living. I believe your greatest success and, and, and being victorious over sin and temptation and all that thing is a strong desire to want to please God as much as we want to please the other relationships in our lives. So this one, one of the marks of wisdom, according to Psalm 1-2, that, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. So the problem is that there's another law at work in the members of my body, Paul said. This, this other principle that is at work, no matter how much we love God, no matter how much we want to please God, we need to understand tonight that there's another law that is at work in our body. Paul taught that very clearly. And it's when I want to do good, there's still evil present with me. And it's going to be that way to rapture. It will be. We're going to fight the flesh, fleshly desires and all of that until we're caught away to heaven. Sin is constantly at war with us in our endeavor to live for God. It never quits, never gives up, it never stops. It is, it is a part of our nature when we are born. We are at war because sin will not give up the control over us that it lost when we came to faith in Christ. The devil is not happy that anybody is here tonight trying to serve God. And he's going to fight you as hard as he can, and it doesn't matter how long you've lived for God. He's not going to give up on you because he does not want you to go to heaven and he will do anything to prevent that from happening. Sin fights against the law of the mind because our mind is where we make our decisions and our moral judgments. We are prisoners of the law of sin at work with us. We cannot resist our sin nature in our own power. When we try, we will be defeated. There's not a, the only perfect person that's ever walked on this planet was Jesus himself, and we all know that. So it doesn't matter how wonderful a person may be. It doesn't matter how great their works are. There's still sin at work in their own human nature. So when we try to tackle it on our own, we'll be defeated. So that's where we teach here at Grace Church that we rely on the power of the Holy Ghost. You have to let the Spirit of the Lord and your knowledge of the Word of God guide you and not give in and yield to temptation. And so when you have the power of the Holy Ghost, even Paul describes that, that there's another law now working in us. So now you have this battle going on between sin and God himself. So watch this. Paul does not say that these powers are equal. They're not equal in power. But he knows they're both there. We must recognize and we must do the same. One power must be resisted while at the same time relying on the other power to get us through the temptation. Does that make sense to anybody here tonight? So when we fail to rely on the Holy Ghost for our daily strength, we in essence provide sin 
with more power over us. Sin's power will not have grown, but our relative weakness will make it seem that way. I want everybody to understand that. God, the, the, the devil doesn't have to load us up with more sin. It's when we don't rely on the Holy Ghost, it weakens us. So it actually even takes less sin to bring us down and break our relationship with God. And I think as, as Pentecostal people, especially as Pentecostal people, uh, we have to be aware of that. Um, sin's power is not an excuse for us to drift spiritually or openly give in to temptation. For us to conclude, well, we have a sinful nature, why am I even trying? Um, that's not justifiable at all. Believers must not forget that you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So let me talk for a moment tonight <clears throat> before we wrap this up about the power of sin. Listen carefully. Everybody struggles against sin. I remember growing up as a child. I was born and raised in church, as you know. And I, I, you, you just knew that little sweet elderly woman that had the little bun right here on the top of her head and just seemed as pure as the freshly fallen snow and what have you that this person has got to be just as close to perfect as you can imagine. Because I only saw them at church. But then when you'd hear them testify once in a while and talk about the battles they faced and the attitude they faced and, and trying to forgive somebody and, and, and trying to do the right thing in certain situations towards their family when they've been mistreated by people and so on, I, I've, I've come to realize as an adult that they have the same battles that everybody else does. Nobody, nobody is given a pass. Everybody fights some element of sin, some element of temptation, whatever it may be. I think another area that, that we as Pentecostals struggle in sometimes is because if people don't have the same vices we have, then we feel like they've been given a pass. So um, I, I, I've said it over and over, and I'll say it again because it, it fits here. I have no desire whatsoever, none, zero, zip, nada, zip, uh, to go gambling. I just don't feel like going to one of these gambling boats down here on the river and giving somebody four or $500 and walking away. I just don't feel like doing that on any given occasion, and usually that's what happens to most people. It's funny how people will spend four or $500 and win $30 and then talk Bring about it all day the next day. I won $30 at the gambling boat. Well, how much did you have to spend to get it? Um, I do like the fellow that found that one machine that he broke even at at the casino. You put in a dollar, and it gives you four quarters back. That's my kind of machine right there. I don't have that vice, but because I don't have it doesn't mean I don't have other vices. Y'all understand what I'm saying? And the same is true with all of us here tonight. We have to understand that everybody fights something every day in your life to try uh, to attempt to please God. So you can't understand. We all struggle with sin, and you must never underestimate sin's power, and we must never attempt to fight sin in our own strength. I'll tell you another mistake I believe we as Pentecostals make is we have a propensity to, to categorize sin. I mean, you, you look at a serial killer, and they're going to split hell wide open, I've heard people say. But the Bible says a liar will do the same thing. Uh, there's all kinds of sins. Any sin, every sin uh, will cause a person not to be right with God. So um, 
I know in our, in our minds, in our cultures, there are some sins that are very, very grievous, what have you. But any sin can keep you out of heaven. I believe that's what we need to understand. So never underestimate sin's power. So because the devil is not tempting you to be that horrible, horrible person, if he can sow a little sin in your life that you do all the time, all the time, all the time, no matter how small it may be, it could cost you your relationship with God. The Bible does teach that sin does break communication and relationship with God. So we can't underestimate sin's power, and we must never attempt to fight sin in our own strength. Satan is a crafty tempter, and we have a great ability to make excuses. So instead of trying to overcome sin with human willpower, we must take hold of the tremendous power of the Holy Ghost that's available to us, and this is God's provision for victory over sin. He sends the Holy Ghost to live in us and give us that power and when we fall he lovingly reaches out thank God to help us up so sin is not always a single act sin is a principle Paul even called it a law it takes possession of the transgressor the moment he violates the law of God sin is a tyrant whom can whom none can conquer but God so to know what sin is and to be delivered from it is heaven begun on earth, literally. Someone once said that sin is what produces a moment of gratification and an eternity of remorse. I want to conclude with this story here tonight because it is, it is so true and applicable to sin. Gary Richmond was a farmer zookeeper. He had this to say. Raccoons raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months old after that they often attack their owners they go through a glandular change no matter how much you train them for the first two years you have them if you get a little baby raccoon and you train it up and it's sweet and adorable and all that they go through a change and they can't help it and they will attack their owners he said and he, he, he makes this comparison that a 30-pound raccoon can equal, be equal to about a 100-pound dog in a fight. He said he felt compelled to mention the change coming to a pet raccoon owned by a young friend of his, a woman named Julie. She listened politely as the zookeeper explained all of this. Someone who had experience with this animal, someone who had researched this animal, someone who knew about this animal. She politely listened as I explained the coming danger. He said, I'll never forget her answer. It'll be different for me. Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial laceration sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. I want everybody to understand here tonight. We can coddle our sin and say in the long run it'll never hurt me but there's a change that happens after a while and what glitters is not always gold and we've all we've all heard that for many many times sin too often comes dressed in an adorable guise and as we play with it how easy it is to say it will be different for me through all of the vast some 5,000 years of human history on this planet the results of sin are now so predictable, they're undeniable. The very nature of sin is destructive 
and anyone who is attracted to sin will be destroyed. What concerns me so much, again, and I open with this and I'll conclude with it, what, what concerns me so much with the, our idea and perspective about sin is we like to define sin on what we think it is. And I think that's where the devil has proven to be so deceptive to our American culture right now, especially with religious people, Christian people, whatever you want to say. Um, people have kind of carved out their own ideas about what Christianity is and, and, and what it should be and, 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 and don't really pay attention to what the Bible says about it. But I want to say here tonight, and as in context with the raccoon story I just shared with you, if you dabble with sin too much, somewhere along the line it's going to come back and bite you. And it's going to be bad. It's going to be ugly. Um, um, there's just some prevailing things in my mind right now, things that are going on right now that, that I'm personally engaging. Um, when, when you're done counseling with people, talking to people, um, when they get up and walk out of the office, when they get up and walk out of the restaurant, uh, just should kind of shake my head and say under my breath, walk into my car, sin did that. Sin did that. I made that statement to somebody just last week. Sin did that. You're, you're in a place where you fell victim to the law of sin and you thought you could handle it. You could handle it. It's interesting to me that most people, after sin has its, takes its toll, uh, there's, there's a good number of people that come back to the church, that come back to the pastor and say, help me fix the damage that has happened in my life with my marriage, with my kids, whatever, my parents, whatever it may be. And sometimes you can help them repair the damage and sometimes the, the damage is irreparable. That's the consequence of sin. So I'm gonna encourage everybody, we're in a, a good revival mode, a good spirit mode um, here on Sundays. Brother Greg preached Sunday morning, hide the word of God in your heart and, and, and live your life to please God, period. You live God to please you. You're to, you live your life to please God, period. I'm going to ask you to do that. Again, my objective tonight is perhaps I can cause some of you to think, to go home and have a conversation with God, to go home and have a conversation with your family. But we're going to start living our lives to please God because we want to be right with God. And everybody say amen. I deeply appreciate your time and attention tonight. I deeply appreciate you being here. And I'm looking forward to Sunday. Uh, have a time between now and Sunday to have some prayer time to prepare for communion. Not that you can come worthily as far as I'm perfect and I haven't sinned in the past few days, but to come humbly, to come thankful, to come appreciative of the great sacrifice that Jesus paid for us on the cross to help us deal with the sin problem that's a part of us that we were born into. And then we look forward to opening the service with communion Sunday and uh, having a great move of God this coming Sunday in church. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. I'm going to ask you to walk around the building, talk to one another, uh, greet our guests here tonight, make them feel welcome. We're glad you're here, and God bless you, and we will see you Sunday.